Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. Today, we're going to dive into some news from Qualcomm and what they're doing on the 5G front. We'll also take a look at new information we have on the Galaxy Fold and recent announcements from Amazon driving Alexa into new homes. Uh, but first, let's take a look at uh, Qualcomm. We had a, a series of announcements this week related to some of their, uh, their activities around IFA. Perhaps the most notable announcement was a, a new system on chip design scheduled to be released in the first quarter of 2021, which will bring a 5G modem to their four series uh, of uh, mobile chips that will bring 5G technology down to volume priced $125 to $250 smartphones. It's really going to open up 5G to, uh, to the masses, if you will, and low, lower priced opportunities. We also saw some other announcements there uh, as it relates to trying to drive 5G into to new places, a partnership with Live Nation, for example, that will bring 5G technology into the, the sport palace in Belgium to be used as events whenever we do get back to going to events. We'll see how, how 5G plays a role. Ross, your thoughts on the uh, 5G showing up on lower price chipsets and what that means for 5G technology in 2021? Yeah, it's just uh, amazing how, uh, how much momentum uh, this uh, transition is starting to build. Uh, I, I don't want to say suddenly, because <laughs> it's been uh, seems seems to have been like in the works for for many years. But now it really seems to have hit ahead of steam. And uh, Qualcomm, you know, they started off with 5G in their top of the line uh, 800 series. That's what you tend to see in flagships from Samsung and Apple. Uh, and then uh, I think last year they brought it to their 600 series, which is uh, mid-range phones. Uh, we see like uh, Motorola, for example, has a uh, uh, Motorola brand has, has a lot of uh, phones there. Uh, Nokia, the Nokia brand uh, has, has some chips there. And out of the four series, and Qualcomm says that uh, this is going to open up a market of approximately three and a half billion uh, people, an addressable market of three and a half billion to, uh, to 5G. So, uh, you know, clearly this is uh, really going to enable it to expand to a lot of markets uh, for which it would be out of reach uh, presently. And, um, you know, from a competitive standpoint, uh, you know, they, they're, of course, not the only provider in the market. They compete uh, against uh, lower cost uh, options from uh, MediaTek. Uh, it's probably one of their uh, major competitors. Uh, and, and, and those guys have been offering 5G uh, at uh, at some lower price points to certainly to Qualcomm flagships. So, uh, you know, it's a competitive response for them. They may not be as dominant in that segment of the market as they are on the high end. Uh, but, uh, but between those two companies, you're, uh, you're, you're really going to see 5G proliferate uh, just about in every market, I would think, uh, over, over the course of 2021. We also saw reporting from uh, Bloomberg, I believe it was this week, that uh, suggested Apple has requested 75 million 5G-enabled phones be produced for them in the second half of, of the year. Apple sells about 200 million 
smartphones a year. So uh, 75 million 5G smartphones, if that actually does come to fruition, is, is a sizable portion of that. Uh, it will be interesting to see if that actually takes place. Uh, well, the carriers have begun to, to roll out the networks. There doesn't seem like there's a huge appetite yet for 5G among consumers. Uh, I, I think when you look at uh, early 5G uptake, it, it feels to me like uh, the enterprise and, and manufacturing other segments of the of the industry will be most inclined to to adopt it. But definitely getting it into consumers' hands will help some of those other markets come to fruition as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a high percentage of their projected uh, sales, but you would expect that from Apple, uh, which is, um, you know, of course, caters to, to the high end of the market. Uh, uh, I, one angle I find interesting is that they're going to offer it only in what sounds to be uh, their top of the line, according to this article, the iPhone 12 Pro Max. Uh, and so they're, they're a little bit behind, uh, you know, certainly their, their number one rival, uh, Samsung, in offering 5G phones about a year behind, uh, not, not atypical for Apple. Uh, but, uh, you know, they're, that's a good example of a company that is going to get the chips from Qualcomm. Of course, they, they did a deal with Qualcomm last year and the tell there is that they're going to be supporting uh, this uh, ultra-fast but range-limited uh, 5G uh, millimeter wave technology that uh, here in the U.S. Uh, Verizon has embraced. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's great if you can get it. Uh, so they've deployed it in locales like parks and football stadiums. So if you're, if you're very close uh, to the tower, uh, it's unbelievable, but uh, just coverage is very limited. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting because pre-pandemic, a lot of that was looked at for, for large venues. That's where mm-hmm, we saw right. some early testing of 5G and we saw some of the great right, promises. about concerts, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, now we're not going to those live venues. And uh, so it prob- probably delays some of the, the use cases and the uptake for, for 5G, uh, given that we were going to really highlight its full capabilities in some of those big venues. And, and, um, and that could be why Qualcomm uh, announced the partnership with Live Nation and they're looking at uh, venues outside of the U.S. where presumably uh, the uh, coronavirus and, the, and COVID-19 will have uh, be more contained. And so they may be back to going to large venues sooner than we are here in the U.S., uh, in other news, we saw on kind of on the other pricing front, if you will, going from uh, volume priced smartphones to the uh, most expensive smartphones we can find. Uh, Samsung hosted their Unpacked Part 2 event. This was a, a follow on to their Unpacked event last month where they had announced their new foldable phone, as well as uh, other announcements like the Galaxy Note 20 and, and the Note 20 Ultra, which we've talked about on previous episodes. Uh, this event, the Impact Part 2, brought us the Galaxy Z Fold 2 pricing, and the new phone will come in at a uh, price point of just a dollar under $2,000, hitting the store on September 18th, and pre-orders have started this event was held September 1st. Pre-orders started the next day. 
How do you think those pre-order pre-orders are going, Ross? Well, you know, I mean, there's there's been a lot of discussion around, you know, is Samsung nuts, you know, trying to offer a two thousand dollar phone in, in the middle of a, of, a, of an economic recession, and uh, you know, the, the 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 basic facts are, you know, e- even if the economy were, were doing great, you know, this is not a a high volume uh, product at at two thousand um, dollars. I think another uh, element at play, and Sean, I'd love to hear your take on this, uh, is that um, you know it seems like a, a lot of the people who have been uh, most seriously affected by job losses during the pandemic uh, likely were not in the two thousand dollar phone market anyway to begin with. Um, so uh, it seems like those who have weathered the storm have uh, been investing in technology across the board. And you could say, well, you know, do we really need this super phone in our pockets when we're not traveling a lot of places? But, but I, I think you know we're we're tending to see a lot of um, mobility, if you will, like within the home. You know, people just like trying to carve out, uh, you know, a little bit more, get get a little bit more done while they're trying to balance, uh, you know, a, a lot in in their new work life balance. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, I'm sure sales will be impacted somewhat by the global economic condition. I don't think it's going to make uh, a huge difference. Uh, I, I think Samsung had, uh, had something to prove here. You know, the first uh, iteration of this device had some, uh, uh, you know, major drawbacks in terms of uh, the, the reliability or the durability of the phone. Uh, they changed the display. They changed the hinge. Uh, and, uh, you know, as you've said several times, Sean, you know, this is a journey where it's still in the early days of, of foldable displays. Uh, and, um, you know, this is a significant, significant step forward uh, overall. Um, so yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they, they definitely repl- they definitely improved on all of the things that they were being criticized for. Uh, and so we saw some great improvements. I think the, the event last month was very well received. The price point, you know, in the end, isn't so surprising. I, I do think there is a little bit of headwind, to your point, around the fact that uh, smartphones have been optimized for a very mobile society over the last 10 years. And right now, at least, we're not very mobile. So all of the features we wanted it in a super mobile device, great battery life, reliable connectivity, good camera lenses, you know, uh, weatherproofing in some instances, durable mm-hmm. screens, l- large real estate, but because that large real estate comes at a cost, we saw the introduction of things like foldable displays. Now, arguably, we don't really need to fold up the displays because we're not going out as much. So now we just have bigger displays around us all of the time. Uh, presumably, some of that uh, starts to to go away as we come out of this and we start to become a, a bit more mobile again. And and to your point, I think there is an appetite for for high end electronics. There always has been uh, an appetite for getting the the newest and best brightest products out there. I, I'm bullish on the idea of rollable rollable and foldable displays. I think as we're surrounded by even more displays and we want more content and information on those displays, being able to easily stow them 
or get them out of view is uh, is useful. I mean, I, I find that even in my own office setup where I've got three or four monitors, there are times where I wish I could stow one of them. I could roll them up, fold it up easily. So I, I think there probably is an appetite uh, for that. Uh, and And there is some risk, I think, you know, it is still a very new product. So it, uh, that it is priced at all is a phenomenal thing. It isn't just a, a prototype, but yet it will probably have prototype-like uh, features and, and be, you know, even somewhat delicate like a, like a prototype might be. Yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, Samsung has definitely lightened up a bit on some of the cautionary behavior they warn users about. Uh, but there are still some considerations one one has to keep in mind, uh, even though they've switched, for example, from plastic to glass uh, for the folding display. I also think it's interesting to note the the uncooled uh, display on the phone, uh, which is the the front display. Um, and uh, in the first fold, Samsung had kind of like this very narrow uh, display, uh, and in, in in this iteration, they have uh, widened it. And I think uh, some of the, you know, one of the takeaways there is that even with this, uh, you know, impressive uh, real estate that they can offer on the inside of the device, when it's unfolded, the one-handed scenario is still very important. And, and people are still, you know, grabbing this out of their pocket to make phone calls and need that immediate interaction. So, so yes, uh, folding speaks to the long-standing need to maximize real estate while minimizing device size, but it comes at a little price, which is you have to open up this thing uh, and, and go through that kind of context switch. Uh, and so, you know, even if it's suboptimal, there's still gonna be a lot of interaction with that front, front display. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what use cases emerge out of this and, and what the uptake looks like. Uh, you know, I think we're at a really interesting time in the journey of smartphones and arguably we're, uh, you know, a decade into the, the mass adoption of smartphones. And uh, so now we're looking at how do we change certain aspects of that experience? What is it that, that changes? I, uh, you could argue that uh, in addition to some, some key hardware aspects over the last 10 years, notably in the camera lens space and in the, in the display space, uh, the, the big advances were software and everything that, that mm -hmm. happened there. We're probably seeing that rate of change slow somewhat. So there's a focus on, can we change the hardware in order to create new use case scenarios? So we saw Microsoft obviously dabbling in multi-display devices. Uh, right primarily for uh, for mobile applications. We see Galaxy with the, the, the Fold here. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if any new use case scenarios come out of this and what, what those look like. And, and if it breathes new life into the smartphone category, uh, arguably in most of the developed world, we're at levels of saturation now. And clearly, uh, you know, here in the US, you've got a high percentage of owners among younger cohorts. And overall, you've got, you know, 80 plus percent of smartphone uh, owners penetration in the, in the population. So you, you have very high ownership rates. 
uh, here in the U.S. You only have about 40% worldwide, so you still have some growth there. But uh, we'll, we'll see what the use case scenarios look like coming out of this. I'll just offer this uh, in terms of uh, what it does for Samsung's ability to differentiate in that there is far more differentiation now between a $1,000 smartphone and the Galaxy Fold 2 than there is between a $500 smartphone and a $1,000 smartphone. So you know, if you're looking at that, uh, at least on a percentage price increase basis, uh, they, they have a strong story to tell. I think that's a I think that's a great point, uh, Ross, and I think you're you're right that it does really differentiate from what we've known to be a smartphone for the last ten years. And the final story we wanted to get to today was Amazon's announcement uh, unveiling Alexa for residential. This is a program that lets property managers add Alexa-enabled devices and experiences to rental properties. About 37% of renters actually live in apartments. That's about 43 million households in the U.S. So uh, it, it definitely will enable Amazon to expand their uh, footprint among users. Perhaps they have felt that the number of users that uh, want to use Alexa skills and, and Alexa functionality has been curtailed or limited in some way because of... Um, the number of people who are, are renting properties. So this is a potential solution for them. And, uh, you know, we'll see what, uh, what that looks like. Yeah. You used to, uh, used to ask Alexa to move in with you. Uh, now, now Alexa will already be living there, uh, when, uh, you know, when you, when you get into your apartment. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it will be interesting to see if they, uh, landlords use this for other features as well throughout the, the rest of the, the building. They, you know, they can essentially um, pre-establish this as, a, as an appliance, like to your point, Ross, that's already there, just like your, your stove, your refrigerator. And yes, you've got your uh, Alexa-enabled devices throughout the, uh, the building as well. And maybe this is a way for uh, landlords to try to differentiate themselves from other buildings by having what looks like smart technologies deployed throughout the facilities. Yeah, I, I would imagine, uh, you know, Sean, this is a point you've made often about expectations, right? Uh, and uh, particularly among younger consumers, uh, they just expect, you know, this kind of functionality to be available. They expect it to be in their cars, uh, to the extent they're buying cars. You know, they, they expect it uh, increasingly in the future uh, to be in their homes. And, um, it was this kind of integration uh, that led to a, a really extraordinary uh, initiative uh, where Amazon, Google, and Apple uh, agreed to get together and support a common standard for uh, Internet of Things uh, communication. You know, these three guys hardly agree on anything, uh, uh, but, uh, but what drove them to all join this alliance uh, was uh, you know what was this idea of of, of new home construction of, of new construction and the idea that they didn't want to have that they that they felt they would all lose if they had to force builders to choose one of their standards in new construction because you know you have no idea if the person moving in is going to be an Apple person or a Google person or you know an Alexa person uh, so um, uh, so you know it, it makes sense and uh, that it drew 
these uh, fierce competitors together uh, speaks volumes about what they all think the, the market potential is. Uh, I, I also think, you know, having looked at this uh, space for a while, you know, years ago, we talked a lot about the smart speaker market and how audio was growing because of the smart speaker market. And I guess I always took the approach that, you know, it's not really the smart speaker market, you know, it's the audio market. Uh, and this, the smart part was going to eventually transfer to just about anything, you know, where you could put in a microphone uh, and, and a speaker. And I, I think that's kind of happening, right? We've, we've seen it go into so many different categories. Uh, Google offers it in their networking equipment, you know, in, the, in, the, in their router. Uh, so uh, this is just another sign about how it's, uh, how it's proliferating and, and just dissolving into the background of, uh, of, of where we live. Well, and it, you know, the other thing that's interesting is Amazon is always trying to promote skill development for these platforms. So now what you could have is essentially proprietary skills for that apartment complex. And it could be a way for the, uh, the apartment owner or, or manager to convey information uh, easily. And, and maybe this replaces traditional email distribution as you can now start to uh, push uh, a different announcements to the to the platform. Uh, we we in in our household have gotten used to the broadcasting functionality. So you can hit a message and it will broadcast to all of the devices throughout the household. Maybe that will cool also feature. show up in the apartment complex where yep. uh, if there was an emergency, you could broadcast that to everybody through those systems. And uh, Sean, you were saying that Alexa has also uh, kind of helped your your lighting uh, needs. Yes. Yeah, you know, I just moved into a new house and uh, older home has a lot of different lights on different circuits. So in my kitchen, for example, I've got lights on four different switches and it, it was felt unnecessary to walk across the room to flip on a light switch. So I added in some smart light switches and now I can just have Alexa turn on the lights and uh, they'll go on. So the small little feature but uh, it added some seamlessness to my own experience. So I, uh, I can see the, uh, the joy of that. We always worry a little bit at the about the privacy ramifications and that right. here is definitely a concern. You know, if you move into a smart apartment that is outfitted with these, mm -hmm. you may not have a lot of say over some of those privacy concerns. So that is something that uh, property managers are gonna have to think through as they deploy this, but uh, more, more to come. And it'll be interesting to see what innovation comes out of this and if apartment managers really can come up with some innovative ways of, of using the technology. Uh, so that's a great place to end it for this week. Thanks again for joining this episode of Techspansive. Uh, I am uh, Sean Dubervac with Avrio Institute. I'm Ross Rubin with Radical Research. We look forward to having you join us next week for another episode of Techspansive.